shortly after I moved to Maui, a friend offered to take me snorkeling. And since I'd never been before, I didn't know exactly what to expect. But I went to the shop and I got the necessary equipment and a quick lesson in where to avoid the sharks. That wasn't what I needed to feel confident, but it's the lesson that they're uh, obliged to give you, I guess. And my friend told me that we'd be going to a place called the aquarium. So we drove past the resorts and we continued on um, a rather rough track uh, on the uninhabited side of Maui and we came to a lava flow which is the latest lava flow on Maui, about 200 years old. And it is just this vast barren wasteland of huge black chunks of irregularly shaped rock. And it's just the bleakest landscape you can imagine. So we were driving on this little track across it and we stopped in the middle of it. Got out of the car and we started uh, looking for the path. And there was this unmarked but a place where you could see other people had found a track across this lava flow. So we started following this track. And it isn't marked, it's just where people have walked. So we followed the track for maybe 15 minutes until we were out in the middle of this desolate place. And the only landscape that let you know you were still on Earth was the volcano rising 10,000 feet behind you. But other than that, you couldn't tell. So we continued walking and at one point we realized we were lost. And it was scorchingly hot sun and there was, we just didn't have a clue where we'd lost the track. So I doubled back and after some time found where the track was, picked it up again and we got reunited and continued on towards the edge of the ocean. And as we got close to the edge of the ocean where you could see the ocean, uh, she pointed out this little um, pool, a little inlet in the lava flow, which is not more than half the size of this room, just this little, little, little pond. And she said, uh, uh, that's where we're gonna go snorkeling. And I looked at it and I said, you gotta be kidding. What's so exciting about a little pond, a little puddle like that? And from standing on the shore of it and looking at it, it was just this little shallow mud puddle. And you, you couldn't see anything. I mean, you couldn't imagine that there was anything in there. But I dutifully, you know, put on my flippers and my mask and, and um, kind of tried to wade out into the, into the water and in about a foot of water, once you get a foot of water, then I just laid down to, because it's hard walking with those flippers. And, <laughs> and so in about a foot of water, you know, it's about this deep, I kind of laid down. And as soon as my head went underwater, it was a totally different world. Right there, there were thousands of fish of all kinds of colors, of sizes, shapes, colors, fluorescent, just unbelievable. It is just another world completely. They say the most beautiful part of Maui is out of sight because it's underwater. In my utter delight and childlike joy, I explored every nook and cranny of that little, little pond for a couple of hours. I just, you couldn't get me out. I was just so fascinated and in discovering this completely alien world to where it was located in the middle of that bleak lava flow.
it is easy to overlook what is beneath the appearance in the ocean as well as in our life. And it was just 20 years ago this week that I was first led along a faint but discernible track across the bleakness of my life to discover the beauty of mindfulness. So tonight is something like my 20th anniversary talk or something like that about the beauty of a life of mindfulness. There are many ways to understand what we're doing here and we hear many talks from different angles uh, about what we're doing here. But in its simplest form, we could say that the cultivation of mindfulness beautifies our life. We can see in each other's eyes or in each other's behavior as we just walk into the hall, how careful life becomes, how sensitive we become, how respectful we become of ourselves and each other when we practice mindfulness. And this is a beauty of caring and sensitivity that is recognized anywhere, in any culture, by any person. When we're deeply aware of our own life, our own mind, our own body, then we become extremely sensitive to others and respectful of their heart and their mind and their body. So tonight I want to speak about the beautiful qualities of a mindful life. The Pali word sobana is usually translated as beautiful. But it means also shining or radiant or splendor. And in fact, there are a number of different mental states or factors of mind which arise in every moment of mindfulness. They're called the sobana, or the beautiful mental states. And it's not that we have to cultivate each of them in turn, but rather they are all cultivated, merely practicing mindfulness. But because there are so many of them, I have kind of gathered them into five groups and given those groups a name or a quality that I'll talk about. And these five traits or qualities of a mindful life are awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment, creativity. Through mindfulness, we can recognize these qualities as those qualities we appreciate in others. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. We can see in our practice here that an essential ingredient to practice, to awakening, is non-negligence or diligence. And the Pali word for non-negligence is apamara. 
another word that means mindfulness. And it's this aspect of mindfulness, the non-negligence of it, that makes being mindful no accident. Before we were instructed, or before it was pointed out to us, mindfulness was just a word, not a reality. But mindfulness, as we know, is that ability to feelingly participate in our life knowingly. Knowing what it is we are experiencing at the time. And this participatory awareness lies in the middle between absorbed indulgence and blind denial. And it allows us to feel and to clearly recognize what is happening. Resting in the midpoint between subjective identification and objective observation. It includes both. I am repeatedly surprised, amazed, and gratified when I hear any of you come into an interview and exclaim once again how wonderful it is to, to just do something so simple as reaching for a cup and actually feeling it. And it is joyful to just live in the body as it goes through its activities. To not be coldly detached and observing it, and not to be so blindly absorbed that we don't really know what we're doing, but to just be present with the simplicity of much of our life. And I remember years ago, when I first started practice, I was on staff here, and at one retreat, a man showed up from New York City, and he was a rather kind of a frumpy-looking, little overweight, and he, just, he, look, he looked really out of place. He just didn't look like everybody else looked here. And he mentioned at the beginning of the retreat that he worked for the New York City Sanitation Department, and as a joke, birthday present, his co-workers offered him a retreat here. And he didn't have a clue as to what he was getting into. So he didn't know. I mean, you know, he's, you know, whatever, whatever he is. And he suffered, you know, he suffered for a few days like we all do. But I remember one time walking into the upper walking room there, near the end of the retreat, and here was this guy doing walking meditation like a ballet. Just exquisite, so carefully, just walking like it was a dance. Thoroughly enjoying just being in the body, being aware of what's happening. Simple attention to this moment. It's easy to feel alive when we're constantly overly stimulated. But what we realize here, what we come to see here is that it's care and attention that clears the sensory palate so that we can experience more tastily our life. Ryokan says, the rain has stopped, the clouds have drifted away, and the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world, abandon yourself, then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. 
the clarity or the simplicity to be able to be guided by the moon and the flowers comes from this care and this balanced, open, receptive quality of the mind to just be attentive. One of the attributes of mindfulness is remembering. Remembering to be present. And in that, of course, we all know that we do a a pretty thorough personal history review, remembering lots that we often just as soon forget. But one time in my early year of practice with Thupandita, out of my frustration and disappointment with my practice, I stormed into an interview and just angrily demanded to know, what is it we're supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? And he said, no, just remembering this one. Just remembering this present moment's life expression or experience of life. And it's that challenge that brings us face to face with who and what we are and who and what we aren't. And in that meeting of our, with our inner life, our present life, we often feel all too keenly this function of mindfulness to remember. Remembering the fears, the frustrations, the disappointments, the loss. It's the task of mindfulness to face the facts, to see things as they are, by not drifting away, by not being content with the superficial surface or the appearance of things, but to take that dip, to put our head into the water, to actually look within and see the life there. When we're able to open to ourselves, then we're able to recognize that in others. Recently I was having some body work done near here and at the end of my session the body worker went and got his son, his one-year-old son, um, letting the babysitter go and brought him down to the room while we finished up. And here's this little one-year-old boy walking around his dad's (laughs) workshop his room, body workshop, and he is just fascinated by everything, whether it's interesting or not. And so I saw him walk over to the windowsill and pick up something that was, you know, looked like fun to play with. And after a brief toying with it, let it go, and with equal fascination, bent down to just feel the floor the carpet on the floor. And with apparent ease and delight in that, then he got up in Dad's lap. And then he played with the dog. And his, just, his mind was just so easy to be with this, then this, then this. And yet I could see in his care and attention that his mind really wasn't wandering. It was just fully present with this, and that, and then this. It was a real delight to get a lesson from someone that is so kind of pure in their attention and desire to know the way things are. So this is the quality of awareness that we come to with our life of mindfulness. The second 
quality or trait that is developed is a grounding in authenticity. which requires a very fine attunement to the life within and the nuances of movement in the mind. As you have all discovered, we are very complex beings. And the display in our mind is vast, extraordinarily vast. And it can be quite a challenge to acknowledge all that appears there. And then to express our understanding of it in how we relate to the world, to others, to events, But as we steadily attend to the inner life, we begin to see what is the truth for me in this moment. And the development of such a refined appreciation of what we individually understand is necessary so that we might act authentically or appropriately in any given situation. And without that fine inner attunement to our own sense of what's appropriate, our actions in the world may not be authentic. But as we look within our minds, our hearts, what we often see is the depth and the strength of our cultural and family conditioning. The imposition of judgments, standards of right and wrong, appropriate and inappropriate. And when we meet these prohibitions or encouragements in our mind, we have the opportunity to see for ourselves: is this so? And that takes a sensitive recognition of our own sense of assurance or our own qualms about any particular behavior or any particular action or any particular response that we might display. And our conditions, conditioning in this culture, in this family, may not always be what we see around us or what we come to discover within, in our own heart, may not be what we see around us. But mindfulness offers us a strength and an assurance that if we act with due regard to our own understanding, we're sure to find, we're sure to have a greater chance of living in harmony. The commitment to walk our talk demands a degree of uprightness or moral integrity or straightness of mind such that 
we know what's appropriate, what's called for, or what we can offer, and we act on it without deception, without deviousness, without game playing, but rather we go directly to the heart and express it. Once when I was practicing with Upandita and reporting to him, I had been rummaging around in my mind and came up with a lot of past experiences which were uh, shameful and not very skillful, which were causing me quite a lot of pain in the remembering. And I was feeling ashamed and guilty and uh, pretty small. And I would prefer to have kept that to myself, but when I went to report to Sayadaw, something within me made me tell it like it was. Without trying to create any appearance or trying to be the good yogi that I hoped he would think I was, but just tell it like it was. And there was an immense sense of relief in being able to be so straight without the fear of judgment or shaming or humiliation that mindfulness allows us to just tell it like it is see it like it is, and express it. Upandita evidently knew that something was going on because he pointed out to me how even when our practice is very difficult, mindfulness mm, doesn't mm, cut corners, so to speak. It goes straight to the point, straight to the heart, and sees the way things really are. In time, I came to rely on and actually feel confident about my experience in practice being just what is and okay. Even if I couldn't understand it, couldn't explain it, didn't believe it, or didn't want anybody else to know. And that confidence or self-assurance is another quality that's developed in just being mindful. We don't have to try to be more confident than we really are. We only need to be mindful. Confidence will grow. One of the greatest obstacles to that confidence, or to self-confidence, let's say, is our doubting that we deserve it, or can earn it, or that it's even possible to be happy. Practice I have come to see is nothing if not a gradual decontamination of our mind and our false confidence. When we initially come to practice, we have a lot of hopes for practice. We have a lot of expectations. We have anticipations. We have a lot of beliefs about practice and ourselves. And f the first part of practice, you know, the first 10 or 20 years, is really a clearing out of those false understandings, those misplaced hopes and expectations, 
and coming to actually see for ourselves the way things are so that we know confidently what practice is all about. And that level of confidence can't be gained from speculation or thinking or a skillful speaker or a best-selling book. Can't be given to you by anyone, but only through our own seeing clearly which hopes are misplaced, which expectations are actually hindrances, and which beliefs are wrong. But when we feel, when we discover the doubts and remove them, confidence grows by itself. And that confidence in our self-knowledge is a quality of beauty that we recognize in ourselves and others. Awareness, authenticity. The third trait or character quality developed by mindfulness is caring. A sense of caring for ourselves and others that is rooted in conscience and expressed through generosity and love. We all want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be admired. We want to be recognized for just who we are, a human being. To be respected, to be acknowledged, and to be held in some warm embrace of others. And Mary Oliver acknowledges this in her poem, Wild Geese. She says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees 100 miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. You don't have to be good. You already have a place in the family of things. By recognizing our own need to be seen by others, to be admired by others, we simultaneously begin to offer that to others, to take others into our consideration, how we act, how we speak, to be concerned for their well-being and to admire their courage in being here. With that due consideration to others, it's easy to refrain from interfering with their life in any way, but instead to take a protective interest 
in their life to guard against disrespectful behavior. And when we refine our sense of goodness and blameworthiness, we're guarded from treating others unfairly or harshly. And in that protection, we recognize our spiritual community, our spiritual friends. Because our spiritual community are those beings from whom we wish respect and to whom we offer respect. Being careful not to act with impropriety, having a wholesome fear of mistreating others. This care, this conscience, is a quality we awaken by careful attention. It's not something that we need to appropriate from others. Nor is it something that should be imposed on us by authority, nor should we accept it. But rather we should awaken it through careful attention. And with the development of a sense of conscience, we're protected from self-reproach, blame, chastisement, and retribution. And we can find safety and connection in any company. And with this awakened regard for others, we quite naturally seek to manifest it in sharing, caring, and offering our life to others. We all have so much to offer each other. Whether it's time, knowledge, respect, skills, experience, material goods, Such open-handed sharing is a natural result of caring. It needn't be demanding, burdensome, embarrassing. Offering from a place of caring and wanting to help others is another beautiful expression in a life of mindfulness. About a year and a half after I did my first retreat, I received a notice in the mail that this building had been bought. And in order to use it as a meditation center, they needed extensive repairs on it. So they asked for volunteers to come help put the place back together. So I had the skills that they were requesting being a carpenter and a mason and, and having those abilities. So I immediately sent in my deposit and said that I would come, not knowing whether I'd be accepted even. But once I came, there were about 35 or 40 or, or so volunteers. Um, and back then we had to actually pay to do a work retreat here. And it was a 10-day retreat, and it was maybe the most joyful work I'd ever done. And it was the beginning of what has now ended up being about 18 years of service 
to the Dharma and to IMS. And I would have to say that offering skills and knowledge and energy in this way is the most rewarding activity I have engaged in. And I can't imagine anything being more rewarding. But I have also had to learn what my limits were in these situations. Because it's not always easy to give or to share. Sometimes feeling my own limits, sometimes not feeling appreciated, sometimes not seeing the need, but in any event, awakening to a sharing of life. And maybe the best advice I've heard is to give what and to whom makes you happy. The appreciation of all that life offers is a further expression of caring within the life of mindfulness. And when we connect with all that our life offers, we feel in touch with others, their hearts, their thoughts, their feelings. We feel in touch with nature. We feel connected to, alive, appreciative, and caring. Earlier this fall, when the leaves were still in full display, one afternoon, warm afternoon, I was walking up the road towards the pond and just noticing the colors and the texture of the stone walls and the blue sky and the warm breeze and the chattering squirrels collecting their winter supply. I just kind of fell into this absorption in the isness of walking in New England in the fall. And it's an exquisite beauty and sensitivity to just be present with the simplicity of color and temperature and texture. When we enter a joyful partnership with life or all of life like that, we can see that we don't need to acquire more. We don't need to hoard what we have. But it's through sharing what we have, what we know, how we are, that really makes life full or valuable, potent and vital. When we're willing to take the risk to open, when we're willing to commit without a guarantee of response, then such courage brings a great joy in life. Maria Illo wrote this poem called In Need. To love oneself, why is this the hardest lesson? Why so afraid, you tattered birds? Who has so shorn you of your wings, said it was bad to fly, selfish to bask, wrong to breathe? How you hop in your broken cages, 
and dare not fly into that gold which lain within holds such store for the world. Not through committees only, but singing your song at dawn. What bird quiet dawns of guilt and frozen song? Only at death's door, sometimes, does the dare come through. I am in need and love, unbounded, waiting to reciprocate. Loving the world in this way and all in it is the only way to overcome the sense of isolation and separation, alienation that we feel from our bodies, from each other. And in that overcoming of isolation, we discover an unlimited potential to appreciate, to respond, to connect. When the soft and undefended heart of patience waits for another to open. And I remember a time in my own opening when I was caught in some bleak and black mental state, fear and contracted and just unable to open, unable to really acknowledge where I was or, and certainly not to express it. And one of my teachers just, without demanding, without expecting anything, just said, when you're ready to share what's going on, I'll be here. When you're ready to share your fear and your pain, I'll be here. Awareness, authenticity, caring. The fourth attitude or attribute of one who lives mindfully is contentment. The calm, balanced acceptance of things as they are. And it may be this feeling of tranquility or peace that we initially look for in practice. Because all too often our lives feels like a madhouse of distraction. Where we're driven to and fro by the chaos of conditions. And we feel the imperative need to respond or we'll feel left behind. Any life of restless distraction or obsessive preoccupation cannot lead to contentment. We can't hurry to acquire contentment. The level of discontentment in our lives, ranging from the outrageous to the sublime, is really resistance, a refusal to accept the way things are. Often we initially believe that if we could just change our partner, where we live, what we know, our meditation experience, then we could be content. And no doubt we struggle with that for hours, if not days or years. 
before mindfulness, the great liberator, teaches us that there is no constellation of conditions that we can put together that is ever going to be stable enough to offer contentment. For contentment does not lie in conditions. It lies in our relationship to them. And so no amount of playing the chess game of life, rearranging the events, the people, the times, the activities, can do it. It's only looking within, waking up, seeing how we create our own discontentment by resistance and refusal to acknowledge the way things are. And it's an important insight to realize that it's the relationships of our life that need the attention. But this requires that we give up the belief in perfection. Because there isn't any one of us in the room that is ever going to be perfect for anyone else. But in that shift from discontentment with conditions to seeing our relationships as a source of a possible contentment, we have to ask ourselves, can I be with this? Can I just be with this as it is? Are these conditions good enough, if not perfect? The third Zen patriarch says, If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Mindfulness leads us to this ability to remain open and balanced in the face of changing conditions. And it's in that that we can find contentment. Awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment. And the fifth trait that's developed in the practice of mindfulness is creativity. And it's creativity that really revivifies our life, that really transforms our personality or our character. And normally, or prior to practice, prior to awakening, partial awakening even, our mind is often heavy, unwieldy, where we are caught in our habits, where we adapt to changed conditions slowly, reluctantly, and to the smallest degree, trying to hold things steady, the same, And often, we rely on authority or historical precedent for our guide in what to do, what to say, how to be. And often, we justify our behavior by very self-serving, dogmatic assertion. This is a life of non-creativity. 
And we've all discovered these tendencies in our, in our own minds. And maybe more than the discomfort of pain in the knee is this utterly painful realization that we are caught in our conditioning. And I've heard the question over and over, how do I let go? I'm aware of my holding on. I know I'm causing my own suffering. How do I let go of my desire? How do I let go of my anger? If I could tell you, I would. And if you could do it, you'd be free. But one of the sublime insights that we discover in practice is that it's not we who are doing the work, but it's really the Dharma unfolding. We're just noticing it. And when we can see that the Dharma unfolds, mindfulness happens. We don't make it happen. We recognize it. And it allows us to settle back a little bit and to allow the Dharma to discover the Dharma, to allow the Dharma of mindfulness to discover itself, to discover all of life. Our task is to get out of the way. We don't have to take responsibility for what comes up in the mind. But we do have to take responsibility for how we respond to it. But with this ongoing alertness of mindfulness, we can take delight in both exciting and boring experience, where we quickly and accurately see how things are, where we can respond without a fixed and biased misunderstanding of who we are. But rather we can live in that flow of changing conditions, knowing that we are changing also. And in that ease of living with the changing conditions, and our changing sense of self, we can respond with compassion and caring and love for one another while remaining in a place of stillness and contentment within. I'm reminded of some of the monks that I used to live with in Burma. And when, it's an interesting thing, when you see monks in public, for the most part they're pretty quiet, informal looking, maybe a little stoic, quite serious, sometimes stern, and they kind of exude a demeanor that, you know, is pretty... Hmm. But in the monastery where I was practicing, there were a number of monks about my age, uh, mid-30s to mid-40s, who were selected by Upandita to be trained to be teachers. And they were the cream of the crop from all over Burma. And there was about a dozen of them. And they lived in a couple of little enclaves in the monastery. And when I first became a monk, you have to learn how to wear your robes because it's just like a big sheet, and you have to learn how to roll up in it in the right way. 
And sometimes it's, you know, when it's a formal event, it's got to be, mm, it's a real task. And so I looked around the monastery one day and I found the person, the monk, that I thought had his robes tied and rolled the neatest. So I found out where he lived and I went to see him. And I said, I want you to teach me how to wear my robes. And it was like an invitation, or I was asking if I could share his life, or if I could share my life with him. And behind the scenes, these guys were great. They were like kids. They just play and tease and hang out together. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just nothing like you see them up front. And they're so playful and so light and so, you know, their time is yours and they share and they're just so, uh, the camaraderie is unbelievable. And yet, when appropriate, they're quiet and still and serene and um, whatever. But what I saw in that spending time with them in their little enclave is just how light and adaptable they really are. Even though from outer appearances they seem very fixed and formal and stiff. But inside of that appearance, their minds are tremendously alive and free. All of these traits, awareness, authenticity, caring, contentment, creativity, they spontaneously emerge from a life of mindfulness. We don't have to try to be authentic. We don't have to try to be caring. It comes just from being awake and aware, attentive. Someone gave me this poem, and they said that Sayadaw wrote it, Sayadaw Upandita, and I never knew that he wrote poetry. Maybe he did. It's called Freedom. Burmese into English translation, so it's not Mary Oliver. <laughs> Adorn with the garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living. Dwell only in states of clarity. Great beauty results with integrity. Adorn with the fragrance of virtuous activity. For others, a care and sensitivity. Dwell only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorn with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity. Dwell only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distractions all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving, no longer hinder the cause or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for a couple of minutes mindfully.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.